Do you want a cash-flowing portfolio that lets you live a life of freedom? Sunsets and palm trees on your terms. Your host, Corey Peterson, is a rags-to-riches real estate millionaire who started with no money or credit and quickly grew a multi-million dollar portfolio of cash-flowing apartments. You're only one deal away from creating the cash flow life. And the Multifamily Legacy Podcast will show you how. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Multifamily Legacy Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Peterson. Today, we are still in our Back to the Basics five-week series, and we are in week four. So if we want to recap what we've done, first of all, our first series, right, on the Back to Basics was all about raising private money, how to get money into your deals, how to set yourself up. It's the one thing that you've got to get really good at. Um, Then we talked about... Week number two is the secret language, right? How to understand the language of, you know, multifamily so we don't look stupid. (laughs) And then last week we talked about truly how to get deal flow, right? Not how to underwrite, but how to get deal flow coming to you, right? And how that the relationship is far more important than just getting the deals because the real deals, the ones that are the juice is worth the squeeze, well, that comes from relationship building more so than just getting lucky with a email that you actually underwrote. So today we're going to uh, dive into a little bit more of the underwriting side of how to underwrite properties. And I'm gonna give you some, some really some rules of thumb that I underwrite myself and how we do it here at Kahuna Investments. And hopefully it'll give you some insight on you know kind of what conservative underwriting should look and feel like. So this is gonna be a really good episode. You're not gonna wanna miss out. Just get ready because we're gonna we're gonna go in detail about how I underwrite, okay? And so, uh, but before we do that, a word from our sponsors. Get started in multifamily real estate investing. Join our virtual Apartments to Millions Summit, where we will teach you how to get started in multifamily real estate investing. Text A2M, the number 2M, to 480-500-1127. Learn how to create cash flow and not quick profits. All right, we're back. So we're just going to jump into it. Listen, we're not going to do iTunes reviews today. You guys keep doing it. I appreciate it. But I really want to get out some of the stuff that uh, I want to talk about today. and Because th- I think this, we underwrite to make sure that the juice is worth the squeeze. And so often what I see is shoddy underwriting. Is, you know, half-baked underwriting that because you can change numbers to make deals work can we can we all agree to that and some people go down that road of trying to make deals work instead of making deals conform and i like the conform part of what we do so we've got some rules of thumb and this is also what i love about the multifamily space is it's all based on the numbers right like we don't have to get emotional. We don't have to, you know, oh my God, I love it. Oh, I love the, pro-. nope, nope, get, kick that out the door, okay? There is no room for emotions when we're trying to make some buying decisions. And if you ever think that you're getting emotional, I want you to check yourself. Here's how you do it. Imagine you bought a deal and you raised $5 million, and now you have to pay that money every quarter. 
And my question to you is, are you sleeping like a baby? Because chances are not, you're not, right? If if you've done this wrong, if you made some mistakes, if you if you were on the gas when you're supposed to do it a little, uh, you know, slower, then there could be some problems in Mexico, right? Like, listen, you do not want to over-assume anything. It's better to be conservative, you know? How do I know this? Because I've lived it. I was I made this mistake on my second deal where I you know bought a little smaller deal than I I, I probably should have. It was only seventy units, and you know and then I, I made some mistakes. I hired the wrong management company that was out of state, out of actually it was the property was in Tucson. The management company was in Georgia, and they were really just a regional. They had no national presence. There was no way they could handle it, and that ended up being a nightmare. And then I decided to self manage. Oh my God, an even worse decision. (laughs) And then I finally hired the right management company, but by then it was too late. And so for uh, two years, um, I barely made any payments to investors. And you want to talk about a haunting feeling, right? Now, we're able to sell that deal and get all our investors' principal back and just a smidget of interest. And, you know, and all the new people, I will never see them again. They're gone, gone like the wind. You hear me? You feel me? Gone. Now, luckily, the other half had invested in other deals with me. And they're like, well, yeah, this one didn't work out. And so yeah, we'll go to the next one. And so that there's a big story on capital there. It, you only get one chance. You get one chance to make a really good pr- impression on how you handle the deal, even when a deal gets sideways. Now, here's the sad story, is if I would have held to my guns on that property when I got the right management company and I would have made and not sell, if we would have held it for three more years, oh my God, everybody would have thought I was the hero because that property would have been worth so much money in Tucson. The market changed. because I bought this in 2011 and... Uh, Gosh darn it. I mean, understanding what I know now, I should have just kept the asset. We would have been fine and we would have made a lot of money. But, um, you know, you live and you learn. So I, I'm going to kind of go over my calculator just a little bit. And I'm, I'm looking at it right now on my screen. So I, it'll help me kind of give some some rules of thumb here and, and what we're going to talk about. And hopefully this does well in describing what you should be doing on your calculator. Because all calculators are kind of built kind of the same. Right. So we're going to we're going to jump right into it and talk about uh, some when you're putting numbers in your calculator. So we're usually going to take a T12 from the sellers. Uh, Sellers going to give you a T12. You want a T12 and a current rent roll and you really want a couple three or four months of rent rolls like back dated three or four months. So you can see some trends. The T12 is going to tell you what it's done for the whole year and a trailing three rent roll, right, for the last three months is going to show you where it's trending currently. And, you know, because there's usually some stories in that T12. We've bought properties where, you know, somewhere along the line they had, you know, they were repositioning it or they were had bad management and there's a dip. You know, I've seen properties that we had a property in Yuma that had a big dip in the summer where it went from 100% occupancy to like 67. And now that was because it was seasonal. They put uh, corporate units, most of the proper units were corporate units to like farm fresh for the agricultural uh, hub in Yuma. So great money in the winter and the spring, but in the summer it was, you know, dead. And that was killing the property because it wasn't consistent income. 
So the first t- line that we want to talk about is gross potential rents. Your gross potential rents is what you put down is when you're, you're 100%, every unit is rented up. Now, what I like to do is use the T12 here and really kind of figure out like, I like to take the, I'm sorry, the rent roll. And then I like to put for anything that's vacant, the market rent, right? So I use the current rent roll and everything that's vacant right? I'm going to use market rents. And then I'm going to figure figure my vacancy, the, f- the physical vacancy. I want to make sure I'm as accurate as possible, but I do want to buy, and I usually have two columns, one for the seller's numbers and one for my numbers. Because as I'm trying to proof up what the real gross potential rent is right now when I'm buying it, I, that's, that's what I'm the one that I'm going to clean up and make sure I know exactly where I'm at today. Starting out the gate, where am I? right? The T12 is from the T12, right? So we have a T12 version and then where are we currently? Because I want to know when I close on this property, what numbers am I really, where am I at? What's my, where am I in the continuum? So that's the way I do it. And then we're going to verify a couple different numbers, right? And this is really on the income side is uh, you're going to have your physical vacancy. That's going to usually transfer right over from uh, your uh, assumptions of where you're taking the property and where it's at currently, right? That you're getting that from that T12. And then you're also, one of the things, the numbers I think you've got to double check and make sure you understand is the other income line. I see this a lot is other income is like your, any, your fees, pet fees, late fees, the laundry, rubs, you know, you've got to really double check and make sure you understand what is that income line? Because some, like I've bought a property where the uh, lady that owned the property, she owned she owned also the laundry, like all the machines and stuff in it. But she was taking the laundry income and, and throwing it on the side, so it wasn't in her P and L, but it was income for sure. And so, but and we were able to see that uh, by asking the question, like, "Hey, where's the laundry income?" And it wasn't in there. And so once we found it out, we had to, we put it in our model for where we were going to do it. And it made the deal work even better because. It wasn't represented in the T12, her mistake, not mine. So, but you want to make sure you are checking and understanding that the income side. So you want to verify, like your job is to verify the income side. Now we're going to move to expenses. Now here's where it gets really, I think a lot easier. And these are the kind of my rules of thumb that I like to use in my initial underwriting. And then I'll, as I get, you know, we have version, you know, one, two, three, as we keep making changes and getting and informing our calculator, in other words, getting better and cleaner data, we make different versions. Cause I want to see where I started and where I ended up based on data. Okay. We don't make changes because of the way we feel, we only made make them based on real data. So here's here's what I think you should be using as like real rules of thumb for your expense side. We're gonna start with salaries, right? Salaries. I budget twelve eighty five per unit for salaries. That's a little bit on the high side. I used to do eleven hundred. I've bumped it up to twelve eighty five. I believe inflation's coming right now. And plus, I want to make sure I have plenty of money to make sure I I hire great people. So I know I'm in the people business. And if I can attract not just a good person, but a rock star sales manager or, you know, managed property manager that has great sales ability and leadership ability, 
I'm willing to pay him a little bit more because I'm going to get, that's going to make my property gold, solid gold. You hear me? That's it. That's And so I budget that because I, I really want to find great people. And I think you got to pay them. Not always, not always. And we also, now this is me coming in to my first pencil. After we do this, we will look and see what is the market. Here's the other part about your salaries and related. You know, I know we figure it by door, but sometimes you got to go back and do it like this. Well, how many people am I going to need and what's their salaries going to have to be and get the number that way? Because if you're right at a hundred units and you know, you've got, you need three people at your property. You, I mean, you may be real super tight at, you know, $1,100 a door. You could be, maybe not, maybe it's, and then maybe you just say, hey, it's two and a half people, right? Two full-time, one part-time, something like that. But 1285 is a real good rule, a rule of thumb. So then we go to the next line, advertising and promotion. I think your advertising promotion, we have started to increase this a little bit, especially with the, um, we starting to do a lot of geo-targeting. We do this, uh, more importantly, we actually raise this number. So for student housing. Okay, for student housing, we make our advertising and promotion number 350, right? So we want that number to be 350 because we can truly geo-target the school and then send ads to each and every student that walks into that building. So that's that's using some ninja stuff. All your people are right there. We just figured out a way to market to them in, in a way that, that makes sense. Okay, so $200 for your advertising promotion, 350 if it's student. Maintenance. Right now, I'm talking about your 1970s, uh, you know, 1980s, early 1980s building. Um, maintenance is about $800 per door. Um, but if it's student housing, we make it $950. Why? Because students just tend to put more holes in walls. Like that testosterone runs. And um, so we have more drywall repair, I think. And they break stuff. Now, the good thing about students is mom and dad usually guarantee all this stuff. And so when they break stuff, we just get their, their deposits back. But still, it's still just a bigger cost of, you got a lot of kids in there. You know, every bedroom's filled up. So, you know, 950 is a better number to have for maintenance. 800 per door if it's just a regular door. Office admin. Okay, that's for like your um, real page, your office equipment, your toner, stamps, all that stuff, right? Um, we usually figure about $150 per door. That's our standard underwriting. Then we go into management. So management, we always figure as a percentage, percentage of collected income. And we pay a 4% uh, management fee. And then I take a 2% asset management fee. So we put 6% in our line. Okay. We want to work. That's what we're doing. Um, and by the way, it's really important that you pay yourself 2% as an asset management fee. Really, as you start this business, someone someone has to be in control and in charge and making decisions. And really, um, you deserve this income, that 2% you deserve, because as you nurture and you're going to start building your business, that's going to be how you pay for some of your staff just to have an, an, a normal operations. So you're not doing it at all. So when, when you're one investor calls Sally that is like, hey, uh, man, I didn't get my K-1. I, uh, for some, I'm, It's not working. I can't jump online. You want your assistant that you hired to be able to handle that. You don't want to have to handle that. So that's, and then the software that takes to run like a portal, right? Like we have our Kahuna portal, an online virtual portal where our investors log into to see their stuff. Well, 
you know, who manages that portal? My admin. Okay, so that's what that extra 2% goes for and you should be using it. Next is um, we have a security line. A security line. I don't normally put money in there unless I see it on the other side. So we, we have a line there, but we don't normally use it because we try to put a man, uh, a maintenance guy or a manager on site at every property. That's something that we, we tend to always do is at least have one unit down and it's for that. Okay. Now, then we get to utilities and this is really, this is where a lot of people don't quite get the mustard. So you got to like, especially if it's like student housing or something that's all bills paid, right? This is where a lot of newbies make mistakes. And I'm, so I'm going to, I'm going to point it out to you in the utility line. If you are in an all bills paid or like student housing where it's still all bills paid and you're running 80% occupancy, if you go to 95% occupancy, your utility bill is going to go up from what it was in the T12. And so this is a mistake that I've seen a lot of people make is they don't underwrite that. And so guess le guess who's left holding the bag when that happens? You, my friend. You and your income just went down. You took a big hit because you weren't smart. So you gotta think about these things, right? This is because we're, you know, your marketing plan, a business plan says, hey, in year two, we're gonna be at 95%. And the utility line was based on 85% in that T12 that you got. Well, you better expect to put some some increase, you know, a 15, 20% increase in that utility bill and add it for your utility line because that's what you're expecting to happen. You got to make sure it happens, right? So that's one of those nut lines that you really got to verify. And this is one that's, I believe you should look at the actual bills. So when you go under contract on this particular property, um, you are going to really analyze the utility bills to understand what utilities really are on a month-to-month -month basis. You should be able to clearly see this based on the current occupancy. So you match those things together and then you can get a real good roadmap where you're at. And the next thing is taxes. And um, taxes, you've got to figure out taxes. And the easiest way I know how to do it is to take 80% of your purchase price, of your new, pr the price you're gonna pay for it, times it times, take that number, 80%, uh, and times it times the mill rate. Now there's typically sometimes in some cities a city and the county mill rate that you have to add for taxes and you can usually ask someone at the tax assessor's office to help you figure that out if you can't figure it out on your own okay um, but that's how you figure out the taxes and because it's usually not your tax line's not going to be what the seller has now it will be for the first year because you usually you're not assessed till the second year of operations Right? So we actually make that uh, tax line change in year two to what it currently will be, right? So that's another this little little tweaks because that's the, the reality. Okay, so that pretty much gets us through the expense rules of thumb. So now let's jump into kind of some other little things that I think you should know about. Okay, so property financials. This is what reserves per door. I have on my calculator the reserves per door standard at 250. But the here's the reality is the bank is going to tell you what they need for the reserves per door. They're going to give you this number. And you need to when you get closer into closing your deal, you are going to inform your calculator and put this real number in so you know what it is before you out hopefully before you go out and make your marketing packet, right? You should pretty have have a pretty good idea of what your lending conditions are going to be, okay? 
Um, again, I told you about the 6% management fee, 4% for, me, uh, for management company, 2% for me. Another line item that we try to put and make our deals conform is an acquisition fee. We put a 4% acquisition fee in our underwriting. And we typically, that's our standard. Now, will we lower it? Yes, we will. I think the standard is 2 and, you know, we just said, can we double it? And the answer is yes. We get a 4% acquisition fee on almost most of our deals. I would say 90% of the deals I've done, I've been able to get a 4% acquisition fee. People don't tend to care as long as they're making money, right? And so why do I take a 4% acquisition fee? Because that's what keeps my lights on. That's how I make, um, as, as the syndicator... That's what you got to do to pay your team, your salaries, and to have a sales department and have an acquisition department. This is what we do to fund our business to make sure that we can keep growing for investors. And 4% makes it grow really good. Okay. Now, will we make it two or three if we have to to make the deal work? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I've always learned this is schedule a pencil what you want to happen and you'll find deals that fit in that pencil. And so we've always made our deals conform to the way we want to buy them rather than vice versa. Now we can always slide that skill because it's, it's, you know, it's, it's money that we can give up if we have to, but we don't like to, and we don't try to. Okay. Loan origination fees. This is, I just keep it at 1% as a standard. I think you can get it for 0.75, 0.65. If you've got a good loan originator, he'll, he'll cut you a break. If you keep doing multiple deals with them. Title costs, I usually keep at 1% of the total loan value, right? That's usually actually overkill, by the way, but it, it, it gives me, a, I call it cushion. I like lots of cushion when I do deals, that money that I wasn't expecting that just is there because when we fully fund, it just gives me uh, enough room for an oh crap, an oh crap moment. No one likes to get stuck in that. So that's a great way to kind of just get through that. All right, so now I'm gonna move over to uh, what I call first mortgage information. And we always, we're currently underwriting at 25% down, unless it's a smaller market, and then we'll go 35% down, right? We'll always ask for 80% leverage if we can get it from a bank, but we just, our normal underwriting guidelines are at 25% down. Um, our current rate that we're using is 3.5% for interest. And that's changed over the time. So it used to be five, and but with our current rate that we're uh, structure now, we're, we've set it at 3.5. But here's something that we do that's just kind of a small tweak, but it seems to kind of work, is we make our AM uh, term to 25 years, not never 30. And why does that matter? I don't know. I, I just find that by cheating a little bit that way, instead of saying, a, you know, I know we can get a 30-year AM, but to make it a 25-year AM just makes us a little more, it's a nice little conservative touch. Not a lot, but again, it just, it screams that we're just trying to be a little bit conservative. And, and these are our initial underwriting metrics that help us determine if a deal is uh, you know worth the flight and the travel do you want to learn how to find and finance apartment complexes using other people's money join us for our virtual apartments to millions summit where we will teach you how to get started in multifamily real estate investing we will show you underwriting how to find the best properties how to find money deal structure and even how to maintain the properties and deal with the unexpected expenses that pop up text a2m to 480 that's A, the number 2M to 480-500-1127. Learn how to create cash flow and not quick profits. Cash flow is king. Okay, so I, I think this is 
truly valuable. So put your term in uh, your amortization schedule to 25 years. And then you keep that standard. Like we don't ever change it. When I open up my calculator, that's where it, it starts. Okay. Um, and that's pretty much your financing. Now we we also have a bridge financing component. So interest only, that's a big, a big thing lately. All the banks are giving interest only. So we have a feature that does that. Um, and then we go into um, closing costs. So what do you what do you underwrite for your closing cost? So here's some closing, you know, you have your down payment, your title cost, that's, that should automatically figure at that 1%. Uh, but here's some costs that are not usually, that you gotta make sure you kind of put in somewhere is your legal cost. And I usually tend to put $20,000 for legal. It's gonna cost me $10,000 to $15,000 for a PPM. And then at least five, you know, let's say I get my PPM at 10, and then I figure it's another $10,000 for my legal to write PSAs and uh, purchase and sale agreements and, you know, redlining and loan docs and things like that. So that's what I usually believe it takes to get me to the table to close. Um, and then I also include a due diligence fee of $10,000. This is money that I'll normally pay my management company to do a very detailed analysis uh, walkthrough of each property than when we buy them, right? It's our due diligence model, and I pay for it. I don't like getting things for free because then you, you, you can't demand and expect. I like to demand and expect, and so I pay uh, my management company, even though they're the same ones going to be managing it, I pay them 10 grand for this, and... I feel like it's a good, it's good. I like, I, I'd rather pay because then I can make expectations and demand what I want, how I want to see it, how I want to receive it, and they have to do it. I think that's important, right? The ones that say, hey, we'll give it to you for free, that you'll get what they give you. And, you know, I just find it's better to be demanding of what you want. That's just my, my experience. And then we have third-party reports. So third-party reports are the reports that, you know, like your environmental, you're going to have to do a, you may have to do a survey, you, you know, you're going to have to order an appraisal. Those are like third-party reports. So I, I budget $16,000 for third-party reports, okay? And then I always have a line called whatever you need. And that typically, it's set right now at $150,000, so I always just figure there's there's got to be a hundred and fifty thousand dollar mistake somewhere's in my underwriting somewhere's or something's going to happen that I didn't see. So I just I always put an extra hundred and fifty just in case, um, and that makes me feel warm and fuzzy. <laughs> All right, we're almost wrapped up, so I want to go over a couple more other things uh, in a calculator that I think you got to pay attention to. Is so uh, your your assumptions, right? Your assumptions. So this, this is how I kind of do it. I will never say that we will ever be more occupied or vacant, right? Our max vacancy or the best it could ever get is 94% occupancy or 6% vacant. So we will underwrite up to a 6% vacancy. And then we also underwrite a standard 3% concession. 3% concession. So on an economic side, that's saying we're economically 91% occupancy, right? That's pretty conservative. And with, at least with the concession line, because we usually do a really good job of collecting money uh, because we use ACH and, and that's our portal adoptions around 
Um, we usually collect all the money that we bill out for. We probably have less than a 1% uh, collection rate on, on that, except for like this COVID period. But normally, that line's less than 1%. But we underwrite it at three, and then we will titrate from you know a current vacancy to maybe it takes us two or three years to get to that 94% or 6% vacancy number. That But that's the max that we'll ever underwrite to. I see some people that underwrite to like 95, 97%, and that's a bad idea. Don't do it that way just stick at 94 percent as the max occupancy you'll ever get and just think about that six percent as the churn that you're just going to have to roll out okay do that and you'll feel good for life and then the other part is like your increase of income per year and this is like where most people uh really mess up is they project too big of increases in in uh just your normal, hey, uh, we got it. We're going to raise the rent, like your normal cost of living adjustment for rent increase, which currently in my we set at three percent, unless we're in a crazy ass market like San Antonio or Dallas or something like that. Then our uh, increase year over year is at least four percent because those markets are uh, appreciating much faster uh, because of demand. Okay and lack of product on the market. That's what we're currently seeing. That's what we're underwriting. Um, but typically it's 3% year over year. And then what we'll normally do is put a big increase, like when we, if we're doing a big value add, we put that increase in year two, right? So to get kind of make you an example of this, if you had an $800 rent, right, that you were getting, and you're saying, hey, we're just going to renew this person, uh, and we're going to try to get 3% rent growth, that's 24 bucks. So, you know, you went from 800 to now 825. No one's going to leave for 25 bucks, but that's your 3% increase year over year over year over year. Now, if you did some work to the property and you were able to maybe, um, you know, put some vinyl, you know, some LVP flooring, some paint, some new fixtures, new switches or something like that, and you made it kind of, you know, a lot more, lot more desirable, well, maybe you get that $24 bump because you're going to get that one anyways, but now you get an extra 50. So now it's 75. And so we've learned to do that in percentages. We like to see percentage increase year over year over year uh, or year. And that usually is in year two because it takes usually year one um, as you start building your plan, doing all the, ca the CapEx, you're not going to realize that bump until year two. And we'll usually only give it because in year two, we can most of the time we can say we've went through most of the units that we're going to fix and, and, and do that work. So we'll put our biggest increase in year two. And that could be from, you know, 6% to sometimes nine. Nine if it's a big rehab, six if it's just a micro repositioning. But we'll let our numbers tell us what that number should be of where we're going to end up and what that difference is. And so that's how we underwrite conservatively in our business. And then... Um, the other thing that we want to talk about is just like on your uh, expense growth for taxes, you need to make sure that's increasing 3% year over year. And then for all other expense items, like on a year to year basis, we grow our expense items 2%. So we're saying, and when we underwrite, we're saying, hey, things get expensive, eat, you know, more and more every year at 2%. And we're raising our rents every year, year over year. Uh, 3%. So we're only really saying we're making a 1% growth truly in our underwriting. Okay. And there, th that's pretty much, that's pretty much it guys. That, 
there's a lot of information in all that right there. That's that's your basics, bone, bare bones things that you, you have to know in 2021 to drive this bus, right? I know that was a little dry. <laughs> it's not me normally coming at you and getting excited. Last week's episode was a lot more thunder, a lot more fun. Uh, this is about numbers. Numbers are not always exciting, but they are absolutely necessary. You have to get good at underwriting so you can sleep like a baby, so you don't make mistakes, so you can raise a crap ton of money and feel great about it and live this lifestyle of sunsets and palm trees, right? And guys, it is up to you. You do have a choice. You can make your life great. It starts with belief. At the at the end of it all, it doesn't matter what I say. It's what you think that matters. So if you're going to think and you're going to dream, dream big, my friend. Dream very big. Don't ever stop. If you believe it, you can achieve it. And your paradise is possible.